0: Glory be to the Father Courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningStarBooksAndGifts.com. That's MorningStarBooksAndGifts.com. Then click on the art and decorative link and click on icons in the drop-down or call 630-629-1720. Morningstar Books and Gifts, 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois. Glory to Jesus Christ, welcome to Light of the East, I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host on this Day of the Spirit. Hopefully all of you are feeling Spirit-filled, because you are Spirit-filled, because we are celebrating in the church both East and West the great, great feast of Pentecost, the Scent of the Holy Spirit. Remember, whenever we celebrate a feast in the church, we do so as though it were happening in this moment. In other words, we are those apostles who are receiving the Holy Spirit for the first time. We enter into that event mystically, which means in a very, very real, concrete way through the liturgy and through the many customs and rituals of the church on a day especially like today, the day of Pentecost. In the Byzantine Catholic Church, it's a very, very rich time. What we do is we decorate our churches with greenery, oftentimes in the country of our origin, of my particular church in Central Europe, we'd use the branches of the linden tree. I use some of those branches myself. In my own church, I have linden trees growing on our church property at Annunciation Church in Homer Glen. And we bring those branches into the church and we decorate the church with greenery. See, in the Eastern church, in many Eastern churches, in particular the Byzantine Catholic churches, green is used as the symbol of the Holy Spirit. In the Latin Rite, the Western Line of the Church, red is used to denote the fiery tongue of the Holy Spirit, the tongues that descended upon the apostles. In the East, we use the color green because it denotes life. We call the Holy Spirit the spirit of life, the giver of life. So you see, again, the beauty of the church, the beauty of that complementarity, where two halves of the church, two complementary halves, the two lungs, east and west, arrive once again at the same point, that celebration, that entrance into the descent of the Holy Spirit, but they do so in their complementary respective ways. And usually it's a matter of emphasis. In the West, they emphasize the the fiery tongues who enlighten the apostles. We, too, are enlightened by those same fiery tongues only through the sacrament of confirmation or chrismation. And so, of course, in the West, they wear red. In the East, we emphasize the Spirit as the giver of life. So, life, the fiery tongues, wisdom, fortitude, all the great virtues, all those things come together in the Feast of Pentecost and in the two lungs of the church, East and West. So it's a, it's a beautiful example of the really the message of this program by the East to show the genius of both lungs of the church, in particular, of course, the Eastern churches, how we can arrive at the same point, but come at it from different complementary ways. And usually those differences are a difference of emphasis, emphasis of a certain aspect of the reality or of the feast day or the event. Now, during this Feast of Pentecost, we sing a certain particular prayer, but we do so, actually use this prayer all the time. But in particular, we use it on the Feast of Pentecost with a certain extra fervor. And that prayer is this. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere present and fill all things, treasure of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O gracious Lord. That's a prayer that I use often. We use often in the Byzantine churches to begin something or, for, or to ask for the help of the Holy Spirit but we say it with a certain fervency on this day of Pentecost. There's other prayers, too, on this Feast of Pentecost, one of which denotes the spirit of unity that this feast, this event brought forward. And it contrasts it with the confusion or the disunity of an event in the Bible, in other words, the Tower of Babel. And here's what the prayer says. This is from the Byzantine Catholic Service of Vespers on Sunday evening, on Pentecost Sunday. In the days of old, pride brought confusion of tongues to the builders of the Tower of Babel. But now the diversity of tongues enlightened the minds and gave knowledge for the glory of God. Then God punished the impious for their sin. Now, Christ enlightened fishermen through his spirit. Then, the confusion of tongues was for the sake of punishment. Now, there was a variety so that voice could be joined in harmony for the salvation of our souls. So you see, Pentecost is a marvelous unifying event in the church. In contrast, the Tower of Babel, where people spoke in diverse tongues, but in a way that was confusing. Here, the apostles spoke in diverse tongues, but in a way in which all understood it was a unifying event. Another characteristic feature of the celebration of Pentecost in the Eastern churches is what we call the prayers of kneeling. Now, these prayers occur, on again, on the Sunday evening vespers. See, Sunday evening and also Monday are big days for us in the Feast of Pentecost, not only during the day itself or on the eve, on Saturday evening, the vigil, but also the day itself, the evening of the day, and also the next day, Monday. On the Sunday evening of Pentecost, we do what's called the kneeling prayers, the prayers of kneeling, because presumably that's the first time that we can kneel again in our church, because during the Paschal season, which of course preceded Pentecost, There is no kneeling in the Eastern churches. In other words, we stand because that's the symbol of respect and of triumph, of victory, of joy, of celebration. But we can kneel at times after the Paschal season, and that begins, the trigger for that, the signal for that, is the Feast of Pentecost. But we kneel so as to, in a sense, humble ourselves to receive the Holy Spirit. You know, the priest is sort of calling down the Holy Spirit through these prayers. So we kneel and the priest says, the three prayers of kneeling. It starts out by saying again and again on bended knees, let us pray to the Lord. And there's three very, very rich, very, very lengthy prayers of kneeling that are said in the Byzantine church on the evening of Pentecost Sunday. I'm just going to give you a little example. I won't read them in their entirety because they are very lengthy and we, of course, always are up against time in our program. But here is a, a sort of a sample of these prayers. You get the sort of the sense, the flavor of them. This is the second kneeling prayer. Again, prayed on Pentecost Sunday evening. O Lord Jesus Christ, our God, you bestowed your peace upon us and you grant us the gift of the Most Holy Spirit. And while still yet being present with us in this life, you continue to bestow upon the faithful this inheritance that can never be taken away. On this day, in a vivid manner, you sent down this grace upon your disciples and apostles, confirming their lips with fiery tongues, that through them, we, in the whole human race, have received the knowledge of God through our own ears and our own language. We have been enlightened by the light of the Spirit and have been delivered from error as though from darkness by the distribution of visible and fiery tongues. Now I'm going to advance forward into this prayer and read this part. O Lord, grant then your generosities to your people. Hear us from your holy heaven, sanctified by the power of your saving right hand. Cover us beneath the shelter of your wings who do not despise the work of your hands. We have transgressed against you alone. Against you only have we sinned, but only you do we worship. Now, again, I'll advance a little further into this prayer. O Lord, O Lord, who delivers us from every arrow that flies by day, deliver us from all things that walk in darkness, accepting the lifting up of our hands as an evening sacrifice. Deem us also worthy to pass blamelessly through the course of the night, untempted by evil things, and deliver us from every disturbance and apprehension that comes to us from the devil. Remove from us all in every unseemly dream and detrimental carnal passion. Then raise us up again at the time for prayer, fortified in the faith and advancement in your commandments. Through the benevolence and the goodness of your only begotten Son, with whom we are blessed together with your all-holy, gracious, light-creating Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. As I mentioned, I just read sections of the second prayer of kneeling, the second of three very lengthy rich prayers said on the evening of Pentecost Sunday in the Byzantine Church. And you can see, hopefully, from the parts that I read, the flavor or format of prayer based upon the form from Scripture. And that prayer is where we start out praising God, You sort of start out affirming, proclaiming what God has done, all the good, incredible things. And we use very, very flowery, rich language. It's almost as though we can't find enough adequate words or enough words to describe the magnificence of God especially on a day like today, in the day of the Holy Spirit. And then we go into a thanks, a gratitude. And then we finally get to our own particular request. And usually these requests have to do with the forgiveness of our sins, the purifying of our souls, our kind of a begging to be made worthy. And then it ends always with the great doxology, sort of ending the way it began, almost like a kind of a, a prayerful sandwich, as it were. It begins with praise and it ends with the resounding, what we call doxology, where we glorify God. The prayers, as I mentioned, are very rich and very beautiful, but you get at least a little sense of them. And it's one of the great, great traditions of the Byzantine Church on Pentecost Sunday. Another great tradition starts the next day, on Monday, Pentecost Monday, in which after the liturgy, there is a procession. This is a very, very ancient custom. It's a procession with the gospels in which we stop at the four corners of the church. Usually this procession is done outside or it can be done inside as well. And you stop and we read four gospels. And the symbolism here is that the Holy Spirit has descended, enlightened the apostles, and they go forward to the four corners of the earth to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, of course, means that we are those apostles today who, having been light by the Holy Spirit, now go forward to all four corners of the earth to preach the gospel. And so it's the prayers to the Holy Spirit, the greenery and decorations and colors in the liturgy and in the church, the prayers of kneeling and the processions are just some of the rich, rich observance in the eastern lung of the church of this great day and feast of Pentecost. Please stay with us here on Light of the East. Welcome back to Light of the East on this great day of Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit. I had a special experience of the descent of the Holy Spirit recently at the ordination, the diaconate ordination of my brother Gregory. This took place at the cathedral in our Eparchy of Parma, which is near Cleveland, Ohio. He was ordained to the diaconate by our bishop, Bishop John Kudrick. Naturally, it was a real thrill for me and an honor. It's great to have my own brother join me in the ranks of the ordained ministry. But it was also a thrill for a lot of other people, including his children. As Gregory, my brother, says, his children are his daughter Maria, his daughter Elizabeth, and his half-dozen or so sons. Gregory has eight children and the great sense of humor, as you can imagine. But I asked his sons, which are, of course, my nieces and nephews, I asked his sons and his daughters what it was like to have their father ordained as a deacon. And here's what they said. Uh, It's pretty exciting. I'm just proud to be serving with him it's kind of neat how all the lawyers are going to be together you know he was a priest and my dad as a deacon the rest of us uh, my brothers and i as servers um pretty exciting i sort of can't believe it it's cool because um we could serve with them and then uh yeah it's exciting although my brother was ordained to the power of the action of the holy spirit he was ordained to the deaconate The Holy Spirit, of course, is not confined to, of course, just my brother's ordination, but rather is very much alive and at work in the church, trying to bring about unity. And recently, there has been great progress, I believe, in that unity between the Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic Church. And I asked our good friend Jack Figo, who you know has been on our program many times before, to share with us some experiences that he has had. And he's had some very unique experiences of Christian unity between the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic churches, and in particular, experiences that he had and he shared with an Orthodox bishop who is since deceased. His name is Bishop Sevelod, who was a Ukrainian Orthodox bishop. This is some of the stories that Jack shared with us.
1: Well, in remembering Archbishop Sevalod uh, of blessed memory, you know, who passed away a few years ago, uh, I recall a, a couple of events and stories uh, traveling with him to various parts of the world. The first time was, and the first story, is uh, about our first audience with Pope John Paul II, Blessed John Paul. And um, we traveled to Rome and had requested an audience with His Holiness, and uh, was granted through Cardinal Cassidy's office, who was then the president of the Pontifical Council for Christian Unity. During the trip, we made a visit to Bari, the uh, site where the tomb of St. Nicholas of Myra is in southern Italy. And while I was there, I saw in the newspaper that uh, Cardinal Cassidy was going to be celebrating his 50 years of priesthood uh, a couple of days later in Rome at his titular church. So uh, uh, we contacted his office when we got back to Rome, and uh, I suggested to Archbishop Severlod uh, that we uh, might go to that anniversary mass that the cardinal was having just as a, as a friend and to honor him and his service to the church. So uh, his office said the, that we were very, very welcome to, to come, and so we went. And I suggested to Vladika that uh, going for such an event, we should take some sort of a gift for the cardinal, and uh, so he agreed. And we talked about it a little bit and sort of concluded that a cardinal with 50 years of priesthood probably has everything he could ever want, <laughs> except perhaps one thing, and that was a Eastern bishop's panagia or medallion that the bishop wears around his neck uh, in the Eastern Church. It's a usually an icon of the mother of God or some other iconographic representation, uh, Christ or a saint or whatever, uh, whereas the uh, Roman bishops wear a pectoral cross. So the archbishop agreed, and I knew that Archbishop Sevalod had a bit of a collection of these, and we were already in Rome, and I also knew that he traveled with a couple, two or three. So we looked at the few that he had with him and picked one out uh, to give as a gift to uh, Cardinal Cassidy and went to the mass that evening, and. We, we went with the speech prepared and the special surprise gift. So at the end of the mass, uh, just before the final blessing, uh, Archbishop Sevilla got up and was introduced by Cardinal Cassidy to the congregation. And so he presented him uh, the Panagia. Uh, the Cardinal immediately put it on and uh, warred for the conclusion of the mass and the pictures we have uh, at the end of that, includes the cardinal with both his pectoral cross and uh, the Panagia that Archbishop Sevelo gave him. So it was a nice remembrance of both Cardinal Cassidy, uh, who's now retired in Australia, and uh, in our visit with him uh, with Archbishop Sevala. Uh, later that same trip uh, in, the, in the week, we had an audience with uh, Blessed John Paul. It was the second time I'd met him personally. Uh, the first time was the uh, anniversary of the Union of Ujurag, uh, which had been a couple of years before that. But uh, that audience was very special uh, in many, many ways. Uh, first of all, it was just the Archbishop and myself, just the two of us with, with the Pope. Uh, and it was just you know to be in his presence. As soon as I walked in the room, I could feel holiness and the spirituality of Blessed John Paul. And uh, we had a, uh, an escort, uh, a Polish priest from the Council for Christian Unity, who introduced us to the Pope. The uh, Polish priest was explaining in Polish to uh, Blessed John Paul, who I was, uh, and uh, when I Greeted the Pope, I said to him, Slava Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ in, in Church Stolanek, and uh, he said back to me, Slava Noviki. He, he knew exactly what I said, and uh, I think uh, with a little smile on his face, he enjoyed being greeted that way. The Polish Priest then uh, went on to explain who I was, why I was there. I had uh, copies of Eastern Church's Journal bound in blue leather that I gave to the Pope for the Vatican Library. And at the end of the audience, uh, I got a, a beautiful bronze medallion uh, from the Pope as a gift that I treasure uh, to this day. Uh, and um, as we went to say goodbye, uh, I, you know, kissed his hand and, and said to him, "Nohe alita," which is, you know, grant, God grant you many years." In again Slavonic, and he replied back to me to you too. So switching to English, I was the only evidence I had that he knew who I was, that I was an American, that I would understand the English uh, and that the explanation they made of of why I was there uh, got through to to the Pope and was a special. During that explanation of who I was, it must have only been five or six minutes. It felt like an eternity. But as we were standing there and the the priest was explaining who I was, uh, the Pope took my hand in his hand and just held it. And it was just, you know, it was just very, very special. That same day, in fact, As part of our audience uh, trip to meet the Pope, uh, Cardinal Cassidy had requested, and uh, Archbishop Sevalod was given special permission to celebrate a divine liturgy at the tomb of St. Peter, down in the crypt of St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, it was just him and I uh, and a guard it was down in the, the, the crypt. Uh, it was at 8 o'clock in the morning so there weren't too many people around. And we did it in English. I was cantering and he was celebrating. and uh, Brought his own antimencia with him and had a chalice and and all the accoutrements that we needed for Byzantine liturgy. We got from uh, Father Taft over at the Oriental Institute. That liturgy, I think, was a very, very historic event. Uh, that same night which was Archbishop Sublette's uh, birthday. Uh, we had a little bit of a private dinner with Cardinal Cassidy, uh, Archimandrite Robert Taft. And um, I asked the table as we were uh, toasting wine and, and wishing uh, the Arch- Archbishop uh, many years as well. Uh, I asked the table, I said, around this table, we probably have uh, the, the best known scholars and, and ecumenists in Rome dealing with Orthodox Catholic relations. And I said, this morning, Archbishop Severot had a liturgy, served the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom at the tomb of St. Peter, uh, over his tomb in the, in the crypt. And I said, um, can any of you think of another time in which an Orthodox bishop has served the divine liturgy at the tomb of St. Peter since the split of 1054? And nobody could. They said, this is probably the first time that's ever happened in a thousand years. So it was an amazing event. A number of years later, when we went to Rome, um, about six months uh, after Pope Benedict was elected uh, the Bishop of Rome, we had uh, requested an audience with His Holiness for the Oriental Illumin group to sort of come and give him a briefing about it. Uh, we were led by Archbishop Severlot, of course, that trip. Uh, Bishop John Michael Botine and Monsignor George Doves were, were with us, the four of us went. A couple hours before we left the airport in Washington to fly to Rome for this uh, week-long of events, We got the word uh, by email from Rome that, indeed, Pope Benedict uh, was going to greet us and meet us on that Saturday. Uh, And so we were uh, very uh, excited to to get that audience set up. Uh, We went. Uh, This time, Archbishop Seload was recognized much more uh, formally as we walked through the Apostolic Palace. All the Swiss guards came to an attention and bounced their spikes on the floor and made a big racket as we went from room to room to room down the long corridors to get to the audience room. It was very, very impressive to see all these guys, you know, sharp Swiss uniforms come to attention. Uh, We got down to the corner office, the corner room that's the anteroom to the audience room. You can look out on St. Peter's Square and I took a couple of pictures out the window just to say I was there. and uh, we went in, Pope Benedict was very, very friendly, very cordial, he greeted all of us. Uh, I presented a book to him. Uh, it was uh, a special edition of one of Archbishop Sevelot's book, the uh, collection of ecumenical writing called We Are All Brothers. And he actually opened the book and looked at the titles of the chapters. It could tell that he was you know, that much of an academic uh, scholar that he wanted to see what was in the book and he took note of some of them and he handed it to you know uh, one of the secretaries there uh, sort of as a special uh, keep this off to the side because i want to read it someday uh, it was it was very very special uh, we got little gifts and and we said goodbye to him and the three of us and then archbishop savelot stayed on um to have a personal one-on-one chat with him. don't know exactly what they all said to each other as archbishop savelot said that's always between bishops what they talked about uh, but archbishop savelot presented the pope with a panagia that we had uh, custom made for the first Oriental Illumin conference in Istanbul, uh, which had an icon of Peter and Andrew painted on it. And so he gave uh, Pope Benedict uh, one of those as a gift. And in return, the Pope gave Archbishop Sevalot a pectoral cross that had been commissioned and used uh, and given to all the bishops who participated in the Synod of Europe, um, which had uh, the four evangelists as icons in the cross uh, engraved. And uh, Archbishop Sevalot asked the Pope if uh, he would put the cross around his neck. So the Archbishop took his kamalovka off, bowed his head, and, and we have pictures of Pope Benedict putting the cross around Archbishop Sevalod's neck. We don't have a picture, but Archbishop Sevalod told us the story afterwards that after that, and, and as, that, as he did that, the Pope gave him a blessing you know, for bestowing the cross on him. The Pope knelt in front of Archbishop Sevalod and asked him for a blessing. Archbishop Sebelo, when he was telling the story, his his eyes were w- w- welling up. You could see he was very emotional. Uh, we thought something, you know, had seriously gone wrong. When it, it was in fact something very, very special. Uh, that, uh, and he said he could not bring his hands to touch the Pope's head, kneeling in front of him. All he did was he said he took the Pope's hands in his hands and gave him the blessing of Saint Paul. You know, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you always, now and ever and ever. And uh, it was amazing to hear the story from Archbishop Savalot that Pope Benedict is not only a scholar uh, and, and now a leader of the Roman Catholic Church, but a, a very humble man uh, to, to make that sort of a gesture. A couple of years ago, my good friend Archbishop Savalot Iskopolis, who was the Ukrainian Orthodox Archbishop here in Chicago, passed away just before Christmas. And I was debating whether to come to the funeral service here in Chicago from Washington where I live, or uh, go to the services that were going to be held at the cathedral and the cemetery in New Jersey. Uh, They decided to uh, split the funeral into two parts. My mother was the one who suggested I actually should go to both uh, because I knew him so well that I should be at at all the funeral services, kind of as his Catholic spiritual son. Uh, And I concluded that, yeah, that probably was the thing to do. So I went on the internet and found myself United Airlines flights that went from Washington to Chicago to Newark back to Washington, booked the flights and, uh, and came here to Chicago. Uh, After the funeral service on the first day, there was a bit of a reception, and I was talking to one of the priests uh, that I was going to Boundbrook for the next two days for the rest of the funeral. And he said, oh, you know, know, a number of us are coming as well and so forth. Uh, And he said, "Um, well, what flight are you on? And I told him, well, the the 940 departure out of of O'Hare. And he said, oh, that's the flight Ladika's on. And the priest said, no, no, uh, Archbishop Seville at the body is going to be on your flight going from O'Hare to Newark. And I said, "Oh, what a coincidence! Wow, I, I just picked it. There was four or five flights, you know, every hour that morning, and that's the one I picked." I said, "Who from the family or what clergy are going to be accompanying the body?" You know, because it seemed to me that that would be the protocol that someone would I'll go with them. And he said, "The funeral director had not consulted the priest or the family, and so booked this flight on their own, and nobody else was on it but me." And so, even though as Archbishop Sobolev and I had traveled all over the world several times to Rome, many times Istanbul. I was up with him on his last flight as he went from, uh, from here to Chicago to New Jersey. Uh, and so as I was sitting at O'Hare Airport, uh, it was a cold rainy morning as I recall because it was the week after Christmas. Uh, I could see the big white box being hoisted along the conveyor belt into the belly of the plane that I knew and confirmed that indeed, you know, that was the coffin and that was Archbishop. Uh, and uh, so on the, on the flight, as they came around and asked for refreshments, I said, oh, I'll have a Diet Coke, but uh, I have a friend downstairs in the hold that would like a scotch and water. Flight attendant looked to be kind of strange. I said, "Eh, that's an inside joke. Uh, But uh, so just by coincidence, or I think perhaps Archbishop Selvold was moving my hand on the internet page to click on the right flight so that I could go with him on his last journey.
0: Hopefully you found these stories as encouraging and inspiring as I did as I listened to Jack share them with me. But there's also other stories and things that are happening as well, prompted by the Holy Spirit, such as recently Pope Benedict XVI received a tiara from pilgrims who were both Catholic and Orthodox. A tarot was made by an Orthodox organization and presented together with a Roman Catholic organization to the Pope, which again is another sign of this kind of cooperation. And wouldn't it be wonderful if this kind of cooperation were happening more and more and more, and not just on these very high levels of the church, but on every level of the church, so that one day, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the church will all be one again. Breathing with both lungs, east and west, always breathing with both lungs, but breathing together. Is one church united in the one same Holy Spirit? I want to thank you for listening. I hope you'll continue to pray with me for unity in the church. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. CRI Catholic Radio